We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. It's Saturday night with Esme Murphy. It's 7.08 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you back on a Saturday night. It's so great to be back on CCO Radio along with our producer, Devin. Uh, it's kind of a gloomy night, kind of a little chillier than you might be used to, but stay warm right here by listening to us. Well, this half hour, I wanted to talk about the situation in Hong Kong because I think a lot of people are kind of going, what is going on over there? Uh, we're joined now by Ann Waltner. She is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much, Ann, for coming on. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I am I know very little about Chinese history. The one one thing that I do know about, you know, Hong Kong and Chinese history is that sort of the seminal event happened, I believe, in 1997 when Hong Kong was no longer a, a British colony. It, it was sort of handed over to China is I don't know if I'm using the correct terminology, but it was and after more than a century of colonial rule, uh, it became a sort of a province of China. And that obviously was a huge change, but that was more than 20 years ago. And there hasn't been this kind of, you know, dramatic protests since then, has there? Um, yes, that's that's right. There there have actually been some protests since then, but nothing like this. Um, when the handover and and you are correct, actually, handover is the term that's used was made in 1997. There was a deal made that for 50 years Hong Kong would be governed. Um, by special provisions, um, the the term that was used is one country, two systems. Um, Hong Kong still has its own currency. They still drive on the British side of the road. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, really. Uh, an American citizen does not need a visa to visit Hong Kong. A wow. Chinese citizen does need special uh, special permissions. It's not exactly a visa to visit Hong Kong. Um, things like freedom of speech um, are much more carefully reserved in Hong Kong than they are in China. So there really there there is a a, a transitional period uh, between 1997 and 2047 um, to kind of gradually to gradually incorporate. Um, Hong Kong into China, okay. and so, I guess I didn't. I didn't realize it, and that's why I'm. I'm so glad we had you on. I didn't realize that there was this big transitional period. So we're in in a transitional period, yet it, it seems to be uh, the transition, especially this particular year, seems to be especially rocky. I mean, what what happened? Well, the the precipitating event was a law which would have allowed people who uh, committed crimes in Hong Kong to be extradited to China. 
China. And I think people in Hong Kong felt um, probably quite rightly that the legal guarantees and legal protections in China were not as strong as they were in Hong Kong. And I think they were also worried that the law might be used to extradite political prisoners. And so at the beginning of the summer, there were a series of protests, you know, every, every weekend um, with increasing intensity about the law. And the, the law has subsequently been withdrawn. But it seems to me that um, sometime, maybe in the middle of the summer, maybe even a little earlier than that, what started to happen was um, kind of fundamental unease about um, about what's going to happen in 2047. In 2047, Hong Kong will be just another Chinese city. And I think wow. um, it, it's, it's not just another Chinese city now. Things are, things are quite different. And so I think that, in, in a sense, what is happening is people are articulating a kind of long-term unease about the future of Hong Kong. Right. But can it ever really be, quote, just another Chinese city with with that kind of a history? Well, that's actually a great question. I mean, I think that um, the the Chinese can subject it to the, the same legal procedures and things that, that other cities, other places are, are subject to. I mean, one of the things that has been true of Hong Kong, oh, probably, um, well, since the foundation of the People's Republic of China in 49, um, it has been, Hong Kong has been essential to China because it was kind of China's window to the world um, that, that I think Hong Kong has been extremely important um, to China's economic growth, financial growth. And one of the things that may be happening now is China may have decided that Hong Kong is no longer as essential um, as, it, as it once was. There are places like Shenzhen, which is um, really just a subway ride away from Hong Kong. I think it probably takes 30 minutes on the subway to get there. You have to get out of the train and cross the border and get back in. Um, and what what has always been so important about Hong Kong for China is that it was a place where, um, where foreign capital was comfortable. Um, and the rules... Enough of the rules have changed in places like and Shenzhen is in a special economic zone. So there may be other places that um, that can fulfill some of the economic and financial functions that Hong Kong has been filling. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think um, people have probably noticed when when protesters in Hong Kong are being interviewed, sort of man-on-the-street interviews um, by Western media, um, people speak quite good English. I mean, that's, that's really a legacy of, of British colonialism. I think also the, you know, the belief in, um, the belief in civil liberties, the belief in the, the rights of free speech and things like that, that I think, um, are very strongly held in Hong Kong. I think that it, that also comes from 
um, 150 years of British colonialism. So, I mean, you're 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 suggesting that um, a political act can't overturn all of that all of a sudden. I think is 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 quite right. What do you think is going to happen? Because it, it seems like this crisis has, has been obviously going on for for some time now, and have, it's pretty tense. It is. It is pretty tense. Um, I have. I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, I. I think. Um, I think that. Um, I suspect that both the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government are just hoping that. It will dissipate um, on its own. I think that um, there is a little bit less solidarity among the protesters now than there was in the very beginning. But in the very beginning, you had marches that were, you know, like mothers in front of the protesters. And one of my favorites was accountants marching in favor of the protesters. You know, wearing wearing their blue accountant suits. And I think I think that there's been a little bit of um, a little bit of fracturing. I think that the increasing violence has made some people quite weary. Um, so, so it it could simply be that it it will dissipate. Um, I think that um, a violent crackdown um, would be would excuse me. <coughs> Would be catastrophic. Right. Well, um, and to a certain extent, though, I mean, there have been pretty dramatic violent crackdowns. I mean, I think that there was video just last week of somebody, uh, one poster, being shot at point blank range. Yeah. Uh, and I, it was just uh, about as graphic as you can get. And there it was on the morning news. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there, there definitely, there definitely has been violence. And in fact, I think, I mean, one of the things that I think has happened a bit in the last couple of weeks is in some ways, um, the target of the protesters has changed a bit from being, um, well, from, from being anxiety about the PRC to being hostility toward the Hong Kong police. And so I think, I mean, I think, I think that there is, that there is violence, but I think, I mean, for example, the, the kind of crackdown that happened in 1989, um, in, in China with Tiananmen, where, where troops are simply sent in and, um, and the, the demonstrators are, you know, are killed. Um, I don't, I think that that, that would be, that would be catastrophic, and I, I don't... Be catastrophic for, for, for China? I think it would be catastrophic for China, and it would certainly be catastrophic for Hong Kong. I mean, I think that, um, I think that even though I was just now saying that I think that there are ways in which there are other cities which have, to some degree, taken up the economic and political importance of Hong Kong, there's still nowhere quite like Hong Kong in terms of... Um, in terms of the the ways in which it functions as a financial center, and I think you know I think financial centers are very fragile. All you have to do is um, all you have to do is make make financial um, financial entities feel uncomfortable and and they can leave and and it wouldn't take very long. Um, to kind of undo the importance of of Hong Kong, and I think it's I think it's fragile now. I mean, one of the things that people were expecting 
prior to 1997 is that there would that there would be great capital flight out of Hong Kong, and that didn't really happen. I think you know a lot of rich people. Um, got permanent residency in Canada and bought houses in Vancouver and things like that. But the, but it, its financial prominence wasn't wasn't destroyed. And I think so. I think that there's there's kind of this fragile dance. The whole time that um, Hong Kong was a British colony from from 1842 to 1997, um, China controlled Hong Kong's water supply. And if they had wanted to bring the British to their knees, all they would have had to do is cut off the water supply. But Hong Kong, as you know, as a British colony, was was useful and important. So it's a it's kind of a long, convoluted history, and that was a, that was a very long and convoluted way of my giving you yeah. an I don't know answer to your question. Well, let me ask you this. How big a deal do you think this whole controversy involving the NBA is? Uh, obviously, well, the, the the general manager of a, you know, one of the teams tweets out support for the Hong Kong protesters. And the next thing you've got the NBA apologizing and then they're apologizing for their apology. And there's a lot of discussion about it. I mean, it's sort of uh, people who don't ordina- ordinarily discuss this or look at foreign politics or, or problems in other countries are suddenly looking at this now. Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think it is, it is very interesting. I mean, it shows, um, it shows the power of the Chinese government and it shows the power, um, the power of, of Chinese um, commercial entities like, you know, like Huawei and, and um and Tencent and and um and groups like that and you know if the NBA says things that the Chinese government doesn't like then the Chinese government can refuse to show the NBA and it it just shows how convoluted these these things are and it also i guess goes to show just what a complicated concept free speech is. I mean, in theory, you know, people in the NBA can say whatever they want, but then all of a sudden, you know, the the shows in in Peking are shut down, and sort of, oops, maybe we'd better backtrack. I mean, I think it, I think it's very interesting, and I think it it does make you kind of think about, um, you know, who has the right to say what, where, and how, and how can that be manipulated by political and commercial interests. Right, right. Obviously, you know, a lot of people discussing that. Well, listen, um, Professor Ann Walter uh, from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this uh, little history lesson in some of the situations that are going on in Hong Kong, which obviously we're seeing it on the news really almost daily. Yeah, Yeah. it's extraordinary. Um, Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time this evening. You're welcome. All right. And we're going to talk more about... uh, China and the NBA coming up with Chris Hine, who's a Timberwolves reporter for the Star Tribune. Um, How did the NBA get to be so big? Um, How big is it? What are the plans for expansion? Um, And what is the impact, perhaps, if if there's a shutdown of the NBA in China? Uh, We're all going to talk and chat about that with uh, Chris Hine coming up in our next half hour. Uh, First, though, we should probably take a break and pay some bills. You're listening to News Talk 830. There you go, 735 in the Twin Cities basketball. A lot of people didn't realize how big a deal basketball was in China until the past week when there was that tweet by uh, 
the general manager of the Houston Rockets uh, supporting those protesters in Hong Kong. And suddenly it was a big deal. And you had all kinds of comments by folks in China, uh, as well as the NBA, the NBA apologizing for the tweet. Then they apologized for the apology. Uh, a lot going on. And then, you know, a blackout in China of NBA games. Uh, definitely a situation that I think a lot of people didn't realize quite how big the NBA was in China, how big business it is, and the NBA's hopes for expansion apparently lie largely right now in the Chinese market. But somebody who knows a lot more about this than I do is Chris Hine. He is the Timberwolves beat reporter for the Star Tribune. Hey there, Chris. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Well, fine, thanks. Great to have you on. I really appreciate it. I guess I would be remiss if I didn't ask you just, first of all, your preseason thoughts about the Timberwolves. Yeah, it's going to be a, a different year for the Timberwolves. Uh, new regime uh, in charge. Actually, uh, their president came from the Houston Rockets, uh, Gerson Roses. Um, and so they're they're trying to install kind of more modern, uh, up-tempo, three-point oriented shooting kind of offense and, and, you know, trying to find the right personnel, I think, to carry them forward here the next few years uh, with Carl Anthony Towns at the helm of the team. So there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of kind of feeling each other out early in the preseason here. And we'll see what happens in a, in a crowded Western conference uh, this season. It's going to be tough sledding for them to, to make the playoffs, I think. Can those kind of changes, the front office changes, make really a difference? It can because, you know, it, it, it dictates kind of the style of play, what kind of players you're targeting to bring in here. It really, it really does kind of uh, alter the course of the franchise. And one thing that the Wolves have been big on this summer is establishing a new kind of team culture that wasn't always present uh, in, in previous years, especially under – uh, Tom Thibodeau, uh, last year there was a lot of kind of chaos and disruption when Jimmy Butler was requesting a trade and wanted out of town. And that, that was, a, of- that was a kind of, I mean, God, he, he was, he was fun to watch when he was on, but uh, my goodness, what a disaster. <laughs> it, 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 it made for a, a really interesting fan experience, I think, because, you know, two seasons ago, you know, they had their best season in 15 years and they made the playoffs. Um, but on the other hand, it didn't look like the team particularly enjoyed playing with each other. And I think that spilled over to the fans and the experience of watching the team. And, you know, obviously that, that those relationships did not hold long term. Right. And I, you know, I, I am a, a very casual fan and I did not go last season, but I went the season before to a couple of games and boy, were they fun to watch. I mean, the, the, these players are really fun to watch and, and they're so young and so talented and you kind of hope that for the best for the team. I mean, I remember sort of, you know, uh, the days of, um, you know, when, when the team was doing well and, and, and made the playoffs. And you're kind of like wishing that that could happen again. Yeah. And, it, you know, I think this new this new uh, kind of president and, and the, the front office, they are thinking more long term. I think that the previous front office and Tom Thibodeau was thinking very short term, like let's let's trade away some of our young players to try and get in the playoffs now. And when you haven't made the playoffs in over a decade, it's a smart, it's a smart thing to, to do. It's just the execution of it and the moves that they made ended up kind of blowing back up in their face. This regime, I think, is trying to plan out for the long haul so that the Wolves will be good in a few years. And, and their goal is to be perennial contenders eventually. 
Uh, we're ch- chatting with Chris Hine. He's the Timberwolves reporter for the Star Tribune. I do want to ask him about – do ask you about the uh, NBA in China. But I do want to ask you, like in terms of a beat reporter, I mean there are some people probably out there listening saying, God, that must be a really cool job being a beat <laughs> reporter for a professional sports team. But is it like – do you have your preseason ritual or routine that you have to go through? Because, I mean you're on the road with them. Yeah, you know, you know what's funny is that I was in Phoenix the other night, and I was right, I was covering the first preseason game, and um, I, you know, my editors gave me a time for my deadline, and I actually forgot my deadline time, <laughs> and, I, and I, or, or I, I had it mixed up in my head, and I did, and I realized it about with about five minutes to go that oh, I have to file in five minutes, not fifteen minutes. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, it's preseason for the writers as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but those, not, those, yeah. those deadlines are just a little bit important in your line of work. Yeah, they are. That 10 minutes can mean everything. Yes. Um, like, so. like, like keeping your job. If you, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I, I did not tell them that. Uh, so if anybody's listening in our office, okay. uh, you know, they, they, now they know that I almost missed my first deadline of the year. Right. Well, and Phoenix is a little tricky because you never know. Sometimes they're on Pacific time and sometimes they're not. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's it's I, I I I'll give you a pass on that one, but um, <laughs> but but seriously, I mean, do you do you have to kind of get prepped or just I mean, because it's it's yeah, a long you know, season. Yeah. It's a long season, so I, I you know in my in my head and and kind of working with the wolves, I have a a, a number of stories that I, I want to eventually write. Not you know not just like the daily kind of stories that you see every day in the paper, but kind of longer form feature kind of stories. You know that might appear in like the Sunday paper, for instance. Um, and so you, you you do have a list of those that you want to try to accomplish as the season goes along. Um, but that's but honestly, like you start writing stuff. You know, once they start playing games, and you kind of see how the team goes. And a lot of that is just based off of how guys are doing. So. Right. There's only so much preparation you can do. And it must be really cool to travel and everything like that. But after a while, I mean, it it, it there's part of it that's got to be pretty grueling. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I like to travel personally. I like to travel more so than than I think other people might. I'm you know I'm in my early 30s. I'm single. I don't I don't have a, a family, or, so I enjoy the travel. Um, but I, I I look at the schedule, and there's a six game road trip in March that I'm especially on edge about because uh, we're going to be it's going to be later in the season. I'm going to be traveling to six different cities in the span of about 11 or 12 days. And so that one, that one, I'm looking at thinking that, you know, I might need a, a, a little break once that one's over. All right. Well, listen, yeah. Chris, you know, I think a lot of people didn't, you know, especially the casual fans or casual sports fans, or maybe they're not somebody who follows the NBA closely. I, I, I didn't realize how big a deal the NBA is in China. I mean, how, how big is it? It's huge. Um, and the NBA has really done a, a good job, uh, you know, the last few weeks, notwithstanding here, of cultivating that relationship in China. It, it goes back really to the turn of the of the 20th century when when Christian missionaries brought the game over to China, and it was one of the few things that once Mao took power, he allowed basketball and access to basketball to still happen. Really? So, okay. Yeah. So, That's so, so the cultural the cultural been... revolution didn't you know throw out basketball. That was still in. Right. It did yeah. not because I believe uh, I I read that his generals um, really liked the game. So that's one of the reasons why it, it ended up staying. So it did it did stay 
for decades, and it has deep roots in China. And wow. in the eighties, uh, the NBA kind of looked and said, "There might be there might be an opportunity here." And the eighties was kind of the rebirth of the NBA. This was the era of you know Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, um, and so and things were opening up in, in U.S. relations with China. So the NBA actually struck a deal, I think it was in 1990, with Chinese uh, state-run TV to start airing highlights and, and games uh, in, in China. Wow. And this was, and this is, so this is right around the time where the NBA is surging in popularity in America. Some of the best players of all time are now playing. And, you know, it coincides with really the rise of Michael Jordan. And then in 1992, you have the dream team, which is all these Hall of Fame players on one team going to the Olympics, and that did that did wonders for for the game, not just in you know really? in China, but the rest of the world because the rest of the world got to see these great players on one stage. Previously, you know the the top NBA players were not going to the Olympics, and now they were, and so this this that's right because it used to be the amateurs, and then you had right yeah right, right exactly. So this was. You know, now you're seeing Larry Bird playing with Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan yeah. and Magic and Isaiah Thomas and all these guys, and it was quite the spectacle back in the early '90s. And so it kind of it kind of kept rising from there throughout the '90s, throughout Jordan. But a big touchstone moment uh, came in 2002 when Chinese center Yao Ming became the number one pick uh, in the NBA draft by the by the Houston Rockets. Um, and so Yao Ming, and, and he became an all-star in the NBA. He did. He he had a great career. Uh, right. you know, little a little injury prone, but but when he was playing, he was one of the best centers in the NBA. And so that you know more than I think anything sent you know basketball's popularity just skyrocketing in wow. China. And and now it's and now it's routine for players you know, with shoe deals and things like that to, to make annual off season trips to China for marketing purposes and to do, you know, appearances for fans and, and things like that. It, every, almost every major NBA star does that in the off season now. Right. And that's, that's something that, that I didn't realize. Well, that's, I mean, this is really interesting just to hear this. And so it sounds as if, you know, people have been playing basketball for years in China for generations Really, and enjoying it the way we do in schools, and I think so. So the, there's that familiarity, and then it's a couple of key moments, and then to have you know a, a Chinese person do that well and become a major, major star, a superstar. You're saying that was one of the pivotal moments here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really, really, this didn't happen overnight. It, it was kind of the NBA's, I think, forward thinking back in the '80s and '90s. Um, you know, so in this age of technology, it's now become easier to broadcast the games and to have access sure. to highlights and social media and whatnot. But the the roots of of the NBA's growth in China were planted a long time ago. It didn't just happen with the age of technology. Right. This has been happening for at least three or four decades now. Okay. So, and Yao Ming, you know, went on to have, as, as you said, a super successful career in Houston. I think he played. Didn't he play for Houston the entire his entire career? I believe so. Yeah. yeah, and and then he goes back to China, and he becomes the face of Chinese basketball, right? Yes. Okay, and, and yes. explain what 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 he is the head of over in China. Um, that I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I do know that he does a lot of um, he does do a lot of promotion of the game. Um, he's he is 
probably the main face of the NBA in China, and he's really had to try and distance himself uh, from his former team um, amid this this latest controversy. And you know, it's been it's been kind of interesting to read the the reaction to the games that have been happening over there. And it really, a lot of the there have been reaction. some NBA games over there. Yes, yeah. um, but there has been a, a limit on you know the the broadcast of these games. Uh, there have been a you know a, a few preseason games scheduled over there, um, but the the broadcast uh, has been has been blacked out. Um, I think, and you know, fans have still shown up to these games. But you read reports about how fans have really mixed feelings now, and um, you know they because the population um, you know definitely feels one way about the the situation in Hong Kong, but they still love the NBA. Wow, interesting. What you know, just from from where you sit, um, you're obviously. I mean, your job is to you know cover and and follow the NBA and follow the, the Minnesota Timberwolves. But where do you see this kind of going or what's kind of – is there any consensus among you know reporters such as yourself that follow the NBA about what happens next? I mean how big of a storyline is this going forward? I would think it would be significant for the growth of this sport. Yeah. No, it's – I don't think anybody has a good feel for how the, the Chinese government is going to react, what the limitations are going to be. The NBA has a billion-dollar uh, streaming deal with one of the tech companies in China. Um, and that's a, nobody, a, a nobody, billion, a billion with a B. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, how is that going to be affected by this? And, and, uh, and, you know, it has, it has a trickle down effect. Um, I, I read, you know, a, a report, I believe from Yahoo sports this past week where NBA GMs, because of the fallout, um, are, are reevaluating the projections for the salary cap over the next few years, because, wow. If if any of if any of this uh, fallout you know affects the amount of money coming into the NBA, it is therefore going to affect how much money teams are going to have to spend on players. Um, so, so this will yeah. be this this could be felt at the front office, you know, yes. down at Target Center. Yes, it could. Yes, it could. Absolutely. And but it's just it's so soon, and I think everything is so uh, raw emotionally right now that it's hard to really say where this is going to go uh, in, in in the next few weeks and months. Right, yeah. And it's, um, you know, and obviously when the story first broke and then there were the apologies for the tweet, I was, you know, I think a lot of people were kind of going, what? And then there's the apology for the apology and obviously a lot of repercussions down the line. But the backdrop is that this is a huge institution really now in China. Well, listen, Chris, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, get ready for the season I mean, do you have to do, you have to, do, you have to do things like all oh, your holiday shopping now, or something like that, or, or well, you're, you're mean, a single guy, so you, and you don't have a family, so that makes it easier. To well, travel. I mean, I do. Have, I have my 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 family is back home in Pennsylvania, yeah. where I grew up. So Amazon helps with Christmas shopping. <laughs> let, me, let me just let me just say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. I, I think I think I think we're all in that column these days. Uh, well, listen. Yeah. Um, good luck with the season, uh, and we will obviously be watching for your work in the Star Tribune. Uh, he is Chris Hine, the Timberwolves beat reporter for the Star Tribune. Thank you so much. No problem. Anytime. Thank okay, you. Okay. Take care. All right. That was interesting hearing. He had a really nice perspective about the history of the NBA in, in China. And I, I don't think I'd heard anybody kind of go into the deeper roots. I'm sort of like a history geek nerd here. 
And I had never heard, uh, you know, I, I'd read about the Yao Ming and how Yao Ming was really big. And, you know, obviously these superstars are very charismatic. But I'd never heard it go back to uh, Chairman Mao and that, that, you know, when Chairman Mao was in the Cultural Revolution, when so much they were getting rid of so many different things in China, so many people were arrested and so many Western uh, things were, were just dismissed or, or not allowed that basketball was okay. And that's that's an interesting point that that it has made those kinds of inroads because I think you've got to have that kind of inroad as well for it to resonate that people have, you know, done this in gym class and then kind of grown up or watched teams or, or had friends that have played and they've played. So interesting stuff. We'll have to keep following that. Well, listen, folks, uh, we do have to take a break. You are listening to News Talk 830. Esme Murphy. It is 7.54 in the Twin Cities, 37 degrees. Esme Murphy back on a Saturday night along with Devin, our producer. And I was just saying in, in the break, you know, it just – I haven't been here in so long because of the twins. And I was saying they've got a fancy new coffee machine. And, you know, I just feel like I haven't been here in ages. And I guess I sort of haven't. But yeah, when was the last time you were here? Well, it was in July. You know, was July it? was a long time ago. Yeah. And, and some of the topics we've talked about, I mean, the vaping crisis wasn't a thing. Nope. The twins were just still red hot. Same, and, yeah. you know, I, I think we were all still sort of hoping that they'd still be playing right now. Yeah. Um, I was even hoping they were still be playing until yeah, late Monday October. night. Yeah. yeah. But um, they did do well. We certainly hope that uh, next year, there's, there, there's next always year. next year. But I, so I, I didn't, I felt a little badly with, uh, because our other producer, Susan Blanche, uh, she actually kind of was setting up the show, and I didn't call her until Tuesday morning. And I felt, well, should I have called her earlier? But I thought, no, that would be kind of jinxing the twin twins, say, you know, to plan ahead for them to lose. And I was not planning for them to lose. I thought maybe this was the year they could break that Yankee curse. I was wrong. Uh, anyway, but uh, so we had set up like a full show, and I had talked to David Schultz. Uh, Professor David Schultz, who we talked to and have talked to for years on this show in the 8 o'clock hour, I had talked to him about a week and a half ago, and he was going on a major trip for the State Department uh, to Eastern Europe. But I hadn't talked to him about possibly doing a show tonight because the Twins were still playing. And I thought, well, of course, they'll still be playing. The playoffs will still be going on. Well, unfortunately, that happened. And then, you know, by the time... You know, Tuesday came around. He was already sort of in Latvia, and I was trying to text him, but I, I guess the text messages didn't work and emails, so I assumed that he would still be there. Then he calls me or he texts me last night and calls me last night saying he's back. So we had to shift the show around. So uh, Susan Blanche, thank you so much for being flexible on doing that because we will have Dave Schultz on after this, and, and there's so much to talk about. First of all, I'd like to hear about his trip to Eastern Europe because I think it's interesting to hear uh, what what people are saying and thinking and talking about the U.S. in this really volatile time, obviously, and how much uh, play the impeachment talk is getting, uh, how much play the president's rallies are getting. Uh, I'll also talk about uh, I was there uh, at the um, Target Center and I was there – I did not – I saw about an hour of the president's speech. The president actually spoke – for an hour and 40 minutes. And I was actually 
my my angle was sort of the the, the president's supporters. And we had somebody doing the protesters, and we had Pat Kessler doing the whole speech. But I did get inside and looked at you know for an hour now of the speech. One thing that is remarkable is I, I've seen a lot of presidents speak. Whatever you think of President Trump, he he is he goes off prompter. A lot of this is just ad libbed. I mean, he's got an unbelievable stamina for public speaking that's just remarkable, and he obviously just loves it. I mean, he really, really loves it. Whatever you want to say about it, he really clearly enjoys what he's doing, and he clearly enjoyed that at times, I would say, off-color talk he gave to the crowd at Target Center. They loved it. So I can't wait to talk to David Schultz about all of these things. Uh, Obviously, he's got the legal background as well, so we can ask him about the intricacies of impeachment. And can't wait to hear from him uh, on his trip for the State Department to Eastern Europe. Uh, News Talk 830. Keep it here. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.